So in constitutional law, we've been talking about case or controversy requirements. Uh, case or controversy just means that the Supreme Court has to hear cases, and just federal courts in general, according to the Constitution, Constitution needs to hear cases that involve case or controversy. Case or controversy requirements extend uh, quite far. This episode, we're going to go over briefly all of these requirements for a case in controversy, <coughs> including advisory opinions, standing, and political questions. There's going to be three cases that we talk about, uh, specifically Clapper versus Am- Amnesty International, Baker v. Carr, and Rucho versus Common Cause. Each of these cases are very interesting. But let's go ahead and just talk about case and controversy and how that all works and really give a couple more overview because there's a couple more requirements that we talk about that were not explicitly discussed as for, uh, as much uh, during lecture, uh, but I still feel are very important to at least touch on because they were touched on in lecture. Uh, so first, uh, so as I mentioned, there are several ways uh, that the courts need to follow the case and controversy requirements. Uh, the first is that they are not allowed to issue advisory opinions. Second, the case must be ripe, uh, which means that it's ready for review. It can't be too early because if it's too early, well, then there's no impending danger, no impending harm, and as a result, if the case isn't ripe, you can't hear it. That was one thing that we didn't talk too much about on in class. That's about the extent of what, how much we talked about it during class. And the reason for this is because it overlaps a lot with standing, which is the third case in controversy requirement, is that there must be standing. The fourth is that the case must not be moot. And finally, it must not present a political question. So we're going to focus most of our time on advisory opinions, standing, and political questions, but I want to take a minute to talk about whether or not a case is moot. A case is moot if it has already been resolved, and if a case has already been resolved, well, then the, ca- the courts have no reason to hear this case. It's not justicable, and that's the phrase that all of this goes to is, can the court hear this case or controversy? Is it justicable? And a case that is moot is not justicable. The reason for that is because there's no need for a legal remedy. It's already been solved. An example of this is if a label company prints a label, person is harmed from the label, and it sues the label company, but then the label company no longer prints the label. Well, the person no longer has a legal issue with this company because the, le- the company is no longer doing the thing that was causing harm in the first place. As a result, it's moot. The court can't hear it. It's not justicable. There are instances, though, where there's an exception to this mootness rule, and that's going to be if uh, it is repetitive yet evades review. And a good example of this is going to be abortion cases. The reason for that is because women uh, have a baby within nine months, and the legal system often takes a lot longer than nine months. And a lot of the time, women don't even know they're having a baby until a couple months into the pregnancy to begin with. And so the court has determined that even though it would be mute, mute otherwise, because if you have the baby, now you don't have any need for a legal remedy, even though it would be mute otherwise, this is something that is repetitious, meaning women get pregnant all the time and repeatedly, but yet it will always evade review because they will have the baby before their case could be heard before trial. So 
as a result, it's repetitive. Uh, it has repetition, yet it re evades review. And even though it would typically be moot, it is not considered moot, and therefore it is justicable. So that's mootness. Let's talk about advisory opinions. This is when a branch of government asks the court for advice before they actually enact any legislation. So the legislature could come say, hey, can we do this? And the court's like, yeah, you can or no, you can't. And we'll give you a little opinion to say why we think that you can and why we think you can't. Or in the case here, uh, a president could come uh, either through a secretary of state, which was the instance, President Washington through Thomas Jefferson asked, should we do this? Should we get involved with France and England and the war that's going on? And the court's like, we can't do that. And the reason why is because we have to focus on the case or controversy. So advisory opinions, you could say, are an alternative to a case or controversy, but the Constitution says we need to do the case and controversy, so we go through the case and controversy. What are the pros and cons of this? Well, the pro to an advisory opinion is that it allows for uniformity in legislation because Congress isn't going to enact a law that it knows the courts did not approve of. But there are cons associated with this, and as a result, there are pros to the case in controversy. The pro to the case in controversy is it encourages separation of powers, and advisory opinions lack the separation of powers, and it's because it's this intermingling of governmental entities that shouldn't be intermingled. And then another pro to the case in controversy is that it has practical application. If a law is enacted, well then people are going to either agree with it or complain about it. And if they complain about it, well, then it goes to the case, it goes to the courts, and the court has an opportunity to resolve. So our Constitution focuses on this practical application instead of the abstract view of advisory opinions. Let's talk about standing, and we have Clapper versus Amnesty International. Standing has three elements that need to be proved to show that you have standing. First, there needs to be injury in fact, and that means that the injury must be present. It can't be a hypothetical or skepticism of a future potential injury. It needs to be traceable to the injurious action. So in other words, that means that the law that is being questioned, frowned upon, so to speak, needs to be the actual cause of the injury. And third, the injury needs to be uh, redressed by the court. That means that the courts need to be able to re give a legal remedy. Otherwise, there is no standing. If any one of those elements is not met, there is no standing. In this case in particular, the majority says uh, that there is no harm for fear of a hypothetical injury, and you can't fabricate an injury by that fear of that potential injury. The dissent disagrees, saying that a harm has occurred, meaning this previous statute did harm them, and this new statute broadens it even more, so it's understandable that they're going to take costs, and so it, harm did occur, and as a result, there is standing. That's something uh, that you can debate over. Ultimately, an interesting takeaway from it, though, is that the courts can manipulate standing to, quote-unquote, cherry-pick which cases they want to hear and which cases they don't want to hear uh, because you can manipula manipulate it in such a way to say 
yes, this person was injured, or no, this person was not injured. And that leads into our political questions. Actually, it doesn't really lead into, but it's our transition into political questions. A case is not justicable if it presents a political question. However, just because a question has a political element does not mean that it is a political question. So, how do you determine what is a political question? Baker v. Carr gives six ways that you can determine a political question. I'll read through them, but I'm going to end up summarizing them into three at the end of it. It says, political questions can be determined by a textually demonstrable constitutional commitment to the issue to a coordinate political department or a lack of judicially discoverable and manageable standards for resolving it or the impossibility of deciding without an initial policy determination of a kind clearly for non-judicial discretion, or the impossibility of the courts undertaking independent resolution without expressing lack of the respect due to due coordinate branches of government, or an unusual need for unquestioning adherence to a political decision already made, or the potential of embarrassment from multifarious pronouncements by various departments on one question. Lots of language in there. It can be summed up into three. First, there are no manageable standards. If there is no manageable standards, it is a political question. We can't deal with it. Second, if the Constitution says that the issue is not for the court, well, then it's a political question. If it people bring it to the court to be heard. And third, if it embarrasses another branch of government, well, then it's a political question. And a good example of it embarrassing another branch of government is if one governmental body makes a ruling and then the court's like, no, that's not a good thing and it gets all intertwined and all that kind of stuff and court just doesn't want to embarrass the, another branch of the government. And we have an example of this being the case in Rucho versus Common Cause. What happened here is that it was a case about partisan gerrymandering, something completely political, but is it presents a political question. And that's really where the debate starts of what's a political question, what's not. And the majority in this says is that there is no manageable approach to resolving partisan gerrymandering. And as a result, this is a political question. The dissent disagrees, saying that there is manageable standards. You can choose the medium map, so to speak, and ultimately that will determine whether or not this is something that is too far from one way or the other. And the majority says, well, then what do you determine is fair? And as a result, because you can't determine what exactly is fair, like how far off in the median is fair and how far off is not, that's not manageable. And because of that, there's no manageable standards. This is a political question, and it can't be answered. So that is a summary of our five case and controversy requirements that must be met in order to find a case justicable. First, can't issue advisory opinions. Second, case must be right. Third, uh, there must be standing. Fourth, must not be moot. And fifth, that must not present a political question. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Law Schoolers. Before I let you go, there are four things I want to say. The first thing is if you enjoyed these episodes and if you enjoyed the website, I would invite you to go and join 
Law Schoolers Pro, and you can do that by going to lawschoolers.com slash join. It's a way for you to support us, but there's also a lot of features there that I think you will enjoy. Second thing is that nearly all of our episodes are unedited. The only ones that aren't are pre-law materials, and the reason for that is so you can actually see the legal material in its raw form as I'm learning it as well. The third thing is that the information contained in these episodes are specifically only for educational purposes. They're not to be used as legal advice. And with that, the fourth thing is if it is used as legal advice, we are not liable. That is, law schoolers is not liable for any legal outcomes. Thank you again for enjoying the show. Have a good one.